Welcome to CPAC Today in Politics. Coming up, as Canadians mark the first National Day for Truth and Reconciliation, the Prime Minister goes on holidays in British Columbia. He had been invited to some events to take part in the public recognition of this holiday, and instead he chose to fly away on a holiday when he could. Like, there's no reason why he didn't leave today, for example, at 8 o'clock in the morning. It's just mind-boggling. Alberta asks for help from the military, the Red Cross, and Newfoundland and Labrador. While details are still being finalized, uh, these contributions may help us to staff four or five additional ICU beds and provide other support. I know that Alberta healthcare workers will be grateful for the helping hand and that all Albertans are thankful for any assistance at this challenging time. And some MPs say all of their colleagues in the House of Commons should be vaccinated. They get fully vaccinated or they stay home. But the Parliament should not come back under any kind of hybrid. Now we know that we can uh, go on with the way this uh, building is supposed to work. It's Friday, October the 1st. I'm Mark Sutcliffe. Let's get right to the top political stories this morning. I'm joined by Toronto Star national columnist Althea Raj. Good morning, Althea. Good morning, Mark. Let's talk first about the very first National Day of Truth and Reconciliation in Canada. There were many events to mark this occasion. Uh, what are what are some of the observations you have after this this historic day? I think it was treated very seriously by many and not seriously enough by others. I was really, I mean, I, this is a day that is supposed to be for all of us to commemorate the tragic and painful history and the ongoing impacts of residential schools. And part of the reconciliation effort, obviously, is um, to have these public ceremonies at the same time, though, I was really surprised, and this is not in the federal scene, but you had, like, Denis Kadai, who's now a mayoral a, a mayoral candidate, having been the Montreal mayor before, but now running the, his old job again, suggesting that, you know, uh, statues of Johnny McDonald need to be um, brought back. You had the premier of Quebec saying that uh, this um, holiday was not required because um, the, the province should be focused on productivity. And then you had the Prime Minister um, fly to Tofino on a surfing holiday with his family. And I say this, Mark, I, I want to be fair to the Liberal government. The Prime Minister did take part in the ceremony on Parliament Hill Wednesday evening that was intended for politicians. And his office says that he spent Thursday, all of Thursday, on the phone with the residential school survivors. But apparently he called them from his airplane as he was flying to his holiday. And, you know, for somebody who pledged that this was the most important relationship to him, the relationship with Indigenous people, and truthfully, he had been invited uh, to to some event to take part in um, the, the public recognition of this holiday. And instead, he chose to fly away on a holiday when he could. Like, there's no reason why he didn't leave today, for example, at 8 o'clock in the morning. It's just mind-boggling. I think it casts a shadow on this whole day in some ways. Yeah, and and I'm sure there will be implications. Naturally, uh, there there will be others criticizing the prime minister for that choice, and and there will be politicians attacking him for it. But 
you have to wonder how indigenous leaders in this country will feel moving forward as as issues related to truth and reconciliation arise and and the government is dealing with them whether in in circumstances along the way gov- the government's words are going to seem hollow to indigenous leaders yeah and he was heavily criticized um for this decision on on Thursday you know he was invited to take part in the ceremony marking the 215 unmarked graves that were discovered earlier this year and it was a big ceremony where um, the AFN National Chief, or then Archibald, was there. And, you know, they had some pretty stern words for the fact that um, he had not responded to their invitation. Um, so I, I I agree with you. I think this is something that will leave a bad t- taste in people's mouths. It's just also, I think it speaks to, you know, the Prime Minister has been criticized for his lack of judgment when it comes to his holidays um, and, you know, perceived conflicts of interest. And it seemingly the you know, whoever's vetting this with PMO is obviously not doing a good enough job. All right, let's turn to the situation in Alberta. And Premier Jason Kenney is turning to a number of different places for help. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, just bring us up to date on that and, and the implications uh, for Albertans as, the, as this wave of the pandemic hits very hard. Yeah, so we had the Canadian Medical Association um, earlier this week basically call again on the Premier of Alberta to enforce this lockdown, to bring the case counts down. There were 34 new COVID deaths, I believe, on Thursday, um, which I think is the highest daily record since last January. So Kenny is still saying no to the lockdown. Um, He's arguing that this would penalize people who are vaccinated. He has agreed, though, to accept help from the province of Newfoundland and Labrador, who'll be sending some um, ICU uh, uh, doctors. He's accepting help from the Canadian Armed Forces. Uh, They will probably be going to Edmonton. So apparently eight to 10 staff from the forces are going. There's 20 staff from the Red Cross that apparently are going to Red Deer. So, um, and the team from Newfoundland is going to Fort McMurray. So he he said yes. Uh, to help, um, but uh, no, still no to the lockdown. And now medical professionals in Alberta are basically suggesting that by the end of next month, um, that's when doctors will have to make life and death decisions because they just will not have the capacity at all to respond to the influx of cases they expect. Yeah, and are there are there decisions that can be taken now that can that can avoid that catastrophic outcome in the next few weeks? Well, I'm not an expert, and the Premier has, you know, as you know, changed his mind several times, but perhaps he will move forward with a lockdown. At the moment, he's now, you know, requiring provincial employees to be vaccinated or to test negative. So, you know, he's changed his mind on, on multiple fronts. Um, I don't know if it will be enough. I suspect that there probably will be more help. We know that um, Justin Trudeau, the Prime Minister, and Jason Kenney, the Premier, spoke on Wednesday. Um, and then he spoke with Premier Mo on Thursday as well, because the situation in Saskatchewan, also I think they had 600 cases on Thursday. Um, you know, this is a pandemic of the unvaccinated, and that is where the federal government is trying to get people who are not vaccinated to, to encourage them to get vaccinated. I saw the Premier tweeting that, you know, uh, don't forget, you can get a $100 gift card if you get vaccinated, but it doesn't seem like... Um, the vaccine hesitant are getting jabbed and uh, nobody 
really seems to be talking a lot about that. Hmm. Now, speaking of vaccines, uh, there's an interesting discussion that's that's happening now among members of parliament uh, about whether all of them should be vaccinated. Um, and and obviously, it, it, it's putting a lot of pressure on the conservatives. And we just saw during the election campaign, Aaron O'Toole was reluctant to disclose numbers of how many of his candidates were vaccinated. He uh, didn't say that he would insist upon his his MPs being vaccinated. Uh, he said he would encourage them, but that it was a matter of personal choice. So uh, this issue is is uh, becoming relevant again uh, after the election as MPs get ready to return to the House of Commons. Yeah, it started earlier this week when the Black Québécois leader, um, Yves-François Blanchet, suggested that all MPs uh, should be vaccinated when they return to the House of Commons, which will probably be sometime in November. Um, that raised a really interesting question uh, because, you know, while the federal government is imposing uh, vaccine mandates on the federal public service, you know, Parliament is sovereign and, again, you know, set its own rules. So will it come to a point where this is actually voted on, just a majority vote in the Commons or maybe even a unanimous vote, if that's what it Because, you know, an MP who is not vaccinated could argue to the Speaker that their privilege, their ability to represent their constituents um, is impacted by decisions yeah. that the majority has made. So it it is a very interesting debate about rights and um, about public health responsibilities. You had Hetty Fry, who's uh, a physician, argue that just from a public health standpoint, that parliamentarians should be leading by example. I mean, you raise a good point about the conservative leader. So my information before the the new wave of MPs was elected were elected um, this month that, or I guess last month <laughs> in September, um, that between ten and twenty four MPs in caucus were not vaccinated. If that's true, that's a lot of people, right? That's a quarter of the caucus, basically, um, and. In a, in a country where where 80, 80 something percent of Canadians have been vaccinated, right? So of adults, yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously that is a caucus challenge for Mr. O'Toole to handle, but at the moment there is an out because of the possibility of coming back in a hybrid form. So MPs who are unvaccinated could be asked to stay home and not show up on Parliament Hill. Um, that's an interesting position, though, because the Conservatives were, you know, the first to argue that Parliament should resume meetings in person. The NDP has come out and said that they think all MPs should be vaxxed, but also they're in favour of a hybrid Parliament. The Liberals on the Bloc, again, are in favour of making sure that everybody is vaccinated. It, it will be very interesting to see what position Erin um, O'Toole takes, and I'm sure that's something that caucus is going to be discussing next week when they meet. Yeah. Among other things, uh, it'll be... Among other things, like their leader's potential <laughs> yeah. to remain their leader. Exactly. Yeah, it, it will be a very... Um, well, they they have to discuss the Reform Act, whether or not they adopt the four parts of the Reform Act. Right. Um, and so we will know whether they choose to give themselves the power to, um, to have a vote on their leader, and then if they choose to do that, if they um, yeah. wait, I mean... If we get into the weeds last time this happened, Mark, Mr. O'Toole actually argued to 
take have that power. Right. But also, if you'll recall, there was like a four-hour caucus meeting where they debated whether or not they should have a secret ballot vote or a standing vote so that basically Andrew Scheer could see who the traitors were in caucus. Mm. So it will be that the, the bill actually says to have a secret vote. Right. But um, it will be inter- it, there will be fireworks, I think, next week, no matter what. <laughs> no matter what. Yeah. All right. No Althea, matter what. Thank you so much. Have a great weekend. Thanks. You too, Mark. That's Toronto Star National Columnist Althea Raj. Each of our nations and communities are affected by residential schools. Miigwech survivors for sharing your truth so our future generations will know what you've endured. Now, here's what political columnists and commentators are writing about today. At TVO.org, Drew Hayden Taylor argues, Graves linked to residential schools should be marked by more than a single day. He writes... The National Day for Truth and Reconciliation is a good beginning, but one day to address several hundred years of colonial malfeasance is the equivalent of picking one day to not walk when dealing with a broken leg. Healing takes time, at least as long as it took us to get here. Countless graves have been linked to residential schools. More will undoubtedly follow. Under any other circumstances, that many deaths that were the byproduct of government and church involvement would be marked by more than a single day. At Policy Magazine, Carol Ann Hilton argues reconciliation requires the perpetrator's truth as well as the victim's. She writes, It is time to reflect on the truth of Canada's origin story. In South Africa, the post-apartheid Truth and Reconciliation Commission heard the truth of the perpetrators as well as the victim's. If the victims and survivors of torture, starvation, sexual abuse, violence, and stolen futures are to be honored, the only pathway forward is to implement the calls to action. This is a time to build a new truth of what Canada is about. Our own futures are inextricably enmeshed. So let's have the courage to do this together. In the Toronto Star, Thomas Wacom argues... The new government can likely get only one or two big things done before the next election, and it will decide Justin Trudeau's legacy. Wacom writes, The Prime Minister already has a legacy of sorts. He will be remembered for legalizing marijuana. More importantly, he will be remembered as the Prime Minister who finally established a national child care system. But beyond that, in the end, the Trudeau government will be judged for its performance on two major files, health care and climate change. The questions surrounding them are what the Prime Minister will have to ponder as he sorts out what he hopes he will be remembered for. And that's CPAC Today in Politics for Friday, October the 1st. Tune in to Primetime Politics Weekend on CPAC for coverage of all the week's events. Our podcast returns Monday morning. Have a great weekend.